when things are like mostly bad, but there's some good stuff, that's a really nasty place because you keep thinking, oh, it's going to improve today. It's going to improve. I'll go on holiday in three weeks' time, so let's just wait till that. And that can end up dragging on for ages, whereas it's better to try and force a decision. But you know what? I don't think this is working, so I'm going to talk to my boss in two months' time, and we're just going to call it then. But like trying to have an end to these situations is really useful. Hey, I'm Andrew Kaplan. Welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast, where I chat with folks who lead cross-functional growth teams about the hardest parts of their jobs and their careers. My guest today knows a lot about challenge and growth. Joseph Fitzgibbon has worked in growth marketing for the last 16 years and is a two-time head of growth himself. He led growth at Gray's, which is a large profitable D2C scale-up, and was the VP of growth at Click Mechanic. He now runs Growth & Company, which is a growth consultancy and recruiting firm pairing startups and early stage teams that are looking for growth talent with high power growth operators. He's got a ton of experience and I was really excited to have him on the show because he's encountered something that I've seen stop a lot of the people in my coaching practice. He's had a job that was his dream job that was totally unfulfilling and ultimately ended up with him getting laid off. And then he started a role after that as head of growth where it didn't get off to a fast start and ended up having his probation period extended. As a coach, I chat with a lot of people who have had challenges in their careers that become almost like a sickness that they take. It chases them from role to role where they're in a job and things aren't going well and their spidey senses start tingling and they start getting nervous and anxious and that starts impacting their success. Joseph was able to have these challenges and continue beyond them. So I was excited to have him on the pod to learn why, to hear about his story and his experiences, and hear about his tips, if he could go back in time to avoid a lot of this stuff happening in his career. If you're interviewing or you're in a new role, or if you're in an existing role and trying to level up, there's a ton of good stuff in this episode. I know you're going to love it. This episode is brought to you by Novatic. If you follow me online, you know how much I believe in the interactive demo space. And that's because if you work at a product-led company, that has a free trial or a freemium motion, what you see is usually a high percentage of those new users sign up, poke around for a few minutes, but never really use your product in a meaningful way. It's really frustrating. And when you survey these folks, usually they'll say, well, I just wanted to see your product in action. I'm not really ready to upload my stuff yet. And I saw this happen firsthand when I was at PostScript and at Wistia. And to solve this problem, we created an interactive version of our tool, an interactive demo, We put it on the website and we saw how effective it was to activate more signups and convert more free users into paying customers. If you're looking for help doing this yourself, check out Novatic. They have a no-code editor to help product-led SaaS companies create and build interactive demos that increase conversions and activations. I recommend them all the time to my advising clients, especially right now as resources are tight and every new account matters. If you're interested in learning more, check out nevatic.com slash value. This episode of the show is brought to you by Mad Kudu. As a former head of growth, my team spent insane amounts of time trying to identify the accounts that were likely to purchase or upgrade based on their behavioral signals. And our business intelligence team spent weeks and weeks analyzing our touch points and trying to predict if an account was likely to convert or not. It was a long and complicated process in the mix of sales-led and product-led motions and touch points made it way harder. Madkudu's revenue automation intelligence helps SaaS companies cut through the noise and brings more focus to revenue and growth teams by predicting and prioritizing the right revenue generating actions. 
They help SaaS companies with hybrid go-to-market models, like the ones I've worked at, understand what the data is telling us and what to do with it. If you're interested in learning more, check out madkudu.com slash value. Can you share what an average week in the life looks for you with your agency? So I spend a lot of time in workshops. We have a sort of consultative model. We work with investors, work with founders, work with the boards. So I spend a lot of time dealing with what are their growth ambitions, what's working, what's not, really helping them shape their thinking and then shape how they think about hiring and team structure. So sort of part doctor, part psychiatrist, part coach. We sort of run coaching sessions. So you're talking about kind of jobs and their career, which is great. It's nice to have a like, strong relationship with them. I got given a bottle of whiskey yesterday because I rewrote someone's CV and he got four job interviews off the back of it and he got a successful job. And I sent him a note saying like, well done. And he's like, oh, what's your address? And I was like, oh, what? And then a bottle of whiskey appeared in the post. So it's things like that that are really special. That's super nice. What are the types of companies that you're supporting and working with? It's a mixture. It's three groups. So some is corporates who are building kind of innovation teams. So they are trying to understand they might have bought a startup or they're building a startup internally and how do they think about staffing. That's one group. Another group is kind of early stage where they're looking at their first marketing hires and thinking about how they structure it. And then the middle group is companies that are not on track for various reasons. So often we get brought in to say, look, we just fired our CMO. What do we do? The numbers are behind. What do we do? And we kind of work with them to understand what the problem is. And often where the problem appears is not where the problem is. So yes, your salesperson is missing their numbers, but it's not necessarily their fault. So we spend time really getting to the bottom of those issues. And is that a common challenge where folks will say, hey, we need to hire a new CMO. Our last CMO wasn't helping our sales team meet their numbers or are there other common patterns that you see from your perspective? It's extremely common. Growth is a new concept, right? We haven't been using that word for a long time. So founders in their 30s and 40s or investors in their 50s and 60s don't know what it is. And it's so pivotal to success that it does take a lot of understanding. You know, are we talking about the same thing? Or we talk about these different teams working together. So it's a lot of understanding the key issue and working with them to help them. I find that in my coaching and my advising as well, where I'll either work with companies who are trying to hire someone to lead growth, sometimes marketing, but a lot of times this cross-functional head of growth, head of e-commerce type role for these SaaS companies. And they'll really have no idea what they're looking for. They'll just kind of know some VC told me or some other CEO friend or founder friend at another company told me to hire this role, or I'll work with the opposite, which are folks who have been hired into these roles and now they're four months in and they realize the company shouldn't have hired me. They probably should have hired somebody else. And now things aren't going well. And it sounds like you just see the other side of that and hopefully try to help these companies course correct when they do make these mistakes. Yeah. And the frequency they make of the mistakes is really shocking. The number of times where they get it bang on, it's rare, to be honest. And I've been in both sides of the situation where I turned up to a role that was pretty materially different to what I thought it was. I've done seven rounds of interviews. I spoke with the investors. I met the entire team. I looked at the numbers. There were lots of red flags. I just didn't see them. I wasn't sure what I was looking for. And I was excited and optimistic and ignored all the red flags, right? Right. This was your shot. I mean, this is what we tell ourselves. I can finally do it my way. I've had to do it this other way at all these other companies. I'll figure it out. I think that's what we tell ourselves. And then you sort of walk in and you're like, well... Do I call my old boss and ask my job back or do I stick it out? And it's this horrible moment 
it's nice to work with clients in Canada to try and avoid that and try and have a situation. We look at success based on retention rather than placement. So it's our one year retention is 70% higher than average because we spend so much time trying to get it right. And it's nice that that time does actually pay off. And just for my own understanding, what is average retention for a head of growth role? Because I feel like people ask me this all the time. I have my perspective, but it's really anecdotal. It's just based on my experience and the people that I work with. Can you share what that number is? It's difficult, obviously, to get the data because the challenge with LinkedIn is that a lot of people just remove it from their CV or they'll call it a project or it's never a project. So you can only kind of pick it up anecdotally. The average we think is about sort of seven, eight months because a lot of people will leave in the first two to three weeks that no one really talks about. So you're not going to have on your resume, you're not going to have any LinkedIn, but a lot of the time will come in and it's really short. So I think about half of them will get beyond a year, but the average can be really low because it's brought down by these very, very early ones who are just totally wrong. There've been a number of situations where you talk to people and you're like, yeah, this wasn't right. I've been in that. I actually had two roles that aren't on my LinkedIn. They're not on my resume. I left HubSpot in 2014 or 2015 and I went to this other company and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I wasn't the head of growth, but I was a few steps behind there. And I got a couple months in, it was probably my third month that I realized I'd made a mistake. And so I started looking then, found a new job after five, six months, I left. I went to this other little startup that ran out of cash. I thought that I had done my diligence and done all this stuff and I'd found the right place. And then I kid you not, I started in January of 2015. And I think in March or maybe late February of 2015, they said like, hey, turns out we didn't have the money we thought we did. We got to let you go. And I don't put either of those on my resume. So I think if you're in the tech space long enough, that happens to you. And so I'm curious to know, how did you learn how to help companies with this? Where did your growth story start? How did you get into this space? I suppose I've had a bit of a different route. I wasn't like marketing exec and marketing manager and worked my way up. I worked in strategy consulting, early doors. I spent four years helping pharma companies sell cancer drugs, which I'm not proud of, but I learned a lot from. And then I did an MBA and I did some strategy work around that. And that was, in hindsight, very useful. So I worked with lots of different companies and lots of different issues. And I fell into startups and fell into growth. So I applied for a strategy role at a direct consumer business. And they said, well, the role has been filled, but we have this head of growth role and it's a bit of a punt, but you want to do it? And I was like, all right, I'll do it. And you see, they took a massive, massive leap of faith. You know, I'm very grateful for that because I spent 10 years into my career at that point. And I'd done stuff that was interesting, but I hadn't found my like, oh my God, I love this. It was like, okay, it's interesting, but like, let's move on. And I was just thrown in the deep end and it was a brilliant role. It was a brilliant situation because the business was relatively stable. So they could take a punt on me being youngish and keen. And on day one, when I worked in consulting, I had to Google what oncology was. I was like, oncology, what's that? Oh, it's cancer. Okay, fine. And then day one, when I was at Gray's, I was like, PPC. I was like, oh, it's Google. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I literally started, climbed in as like head of growth. I had to climb down the ladder and learn some of the basics and basically climb up again. It was a great experience. And that's kind of how I got into it. But it's quite different for most people. Most people sort of work their way up the marketing ladder, but mine was a bit of a different journey. I don't think that there's one path. I really don't. I've been doing this long enough that everybody says that. It's like almost if you say, hey, my path here is different than most. If you say that, it actually is the same as most, I think, because people come from data, they come from engineering, they come from product, they come from marketing, strategy, consulting, like all of those are common threads that I've seen in the past. And that's what makes growth so exciting, right? Because... 
it isn't this very particular skill set. The whole point of it is it's lots of skill sets. And that's what makes it really interesting. Yeah. So I was curious to know, you said, hey, I hadn't found anything up until that point that made me say, oh my God, I love this. And so what was it about when you started getting into growth that gave you that reaction? Back in the day, I was in pharmaceuticals, and it takes a long time to go from you know, tests in a lab to a, a commercial product. And obviously, because they're highly regulated, you can't just be like, oh, I think we should change the formulation, right? You have to do another trial. It makes it quite interesting intellectually because it's very restricted. But practically, you're dealing with products that are going to launch in four years' time. So it all feels quite theoretical. Whereas you go into growth, and you can suddenly change things immediately and see the results. So previous life, it felt very theoretical. It felt a bit removed from reality, relatively slow moving. And then you join a startup and it's like, it's real. It's like an immediate response for things. And I was always into how businesses work and how ideas work. And you get to actually change it rather than make some pretty slides to say, in five years time, this is what you should do. It's what we're doing today. And now that kind of immediacy of it is really, really appealing. Yeah, I felt the same. And as part of that, who knows if what was on that slide deck was going to even work in four years. So when you work in growth, you get to find out in the next two weeks, probably, or something much sooner. And that's what makes it so addicting and also kind of frustrating because a lot of the best practices that you read about or what other companies have done that you think would work doesn't always translate one-to-one -one. and failure is kind of a huge part of that as well, I found. Yeah. I think if you sort of compare corporate versus startup culture, failure is game fired, right? And startup is like, well, if you do something and you fail, that's a good learning. As long as you learn from it quickly, that's not a real failure. And the definition of how we define a failure is totally different. So I felt much freer in startups because you can just try stuff and be like, well, I don't know if it's going to work. That's why we're going to test it. Which in a corporate, it's like stand in front of the CFO and pitch your money. And if this doesn't go well, like that's probably the end of your job. So it's much freer and much faster movement. I'm never going back, as you can probably tell. <laughs> But so it's not all easy. It's not all rainbows, even though it's a fun place to work. I'm curious to know, and this show obviously is exploring some of the challenges along the way. I'm curious to know if you could share one of your earlier career mistakes that you made on this path. Obviously, you've gotten to do a lot of amazing things once you got into growth and even now with your agency, obviously, and helping folks hire. But early on, what was one of the biggest mistakes that stands out to you as we kind of reflect back here? Post-MBA, I joined a business called Diageo, so a massive drinks company. And at the time, it was the kind of dream job. So I was trying to launch my own drinks brand while I was a student. And I had no idea what I was doing. But it was interesting. I enjoyed it. And I was like, well, you know what? Let's join a massive drinks company. And then I'll learn the stuff that I clearly don't know. We were kind of doing the same things that we did in pharmaceuticals, but it's alcohol. And you can move things quickly. So if you want to change packaging or the flavor or the messaging, you can do it straight away rather than waiting for these clinical trials. So I got this job. And I was like, this is amazing. And it very, very, very quickly turned out not to be amazing. At the time, I didn't realize it, but about three months ago, I got diagnosed with ADHD. So I walked in and it was very, very analytical. It was like long-term planning. I was in the strategy team. So it was like very high stakes issues. And my attention to detail is pretty awful for these things. It's like long-term trends in emerging markets. And if you accidentally miss a cell, the whole calculation's wrong and you send it to the board and it goes to the investors and the share proposal, terrible. And it was also very secretive as well, because it's not like an open collaborative thing. Like we were working on quite secret stuff. It was just so wrong culturally. And the difference from going from like 
this is my dream job. I spent a lot of money on MBA. Like I'm really glad to have landed the job that I really wanted. This is amazing to, oh my God, this is bad. But I think one of the challenges, and this is probably a useful thing for listeners, is you sort of like, I'll just get through the first two weeks. And then once I've done this, it'll improve. Once I've learned this bit, it'll improve. And it never did. It slowly gets worse and worse. You have like a good day, then you have a few bad days. Can you give us an example of a bad day? Because I think there's probably a lot of folks who are listening to this who might be in that situation, right? They work somewhere where they have a couple good days, they have a couple bad days, and probably they're thinking, am I in that situation right now? So I'm wondering if we could bring us back in time and reflect on what a bad day might look like. I think like fundamentally, the requirements that they needed from me and how my brain operated were totally different. It's a bit like if you're left-handed and trying to write with your right hand or vice versa, you can kind of have a go, but it never feels natural to keep your marketing up. If you're a very brand person and trying to make commercial decisions, it's not really in your DNA for many people and vice versa, right? If you're a very quanti person trying to pick which ad is most visually appealing, it's probably not for you. So it just didn't feel right. And you can write with your left hand if you have to, but it doesn't feel right and it never gets much better. It is a very different way. It's just doing things that feel uncomfortable, but you do them again and again, and they still feel uncomfortable. If it feels uncomfortable and it gets better, that's cool and that's gross. But when it just constantly feels like a struggle, that's not growth. That's not fun. I had an episode with Adam Fishman, and what he talked about is the relationship to being in this comfort zone versus discomfort. And he actually gave a percentage, something like when you're in 20% outside your comfort zone and 75 in your comfort zone, really that's a great place for personal and professional career growth to happen. When that seesaw becomes unbalanced and you spend more than 25% of your time in that discomfort zone, that's where you feel like you're in the wrong spot and that you got to get out. And so what I'm hearing you say is that's how you felt, that that ratio was heavily skewed in the discomfort zone. That is a brilliant analogy because yes, that's exactly how it felt. It felt constantly being in the discomfort zone. And you'd sort of send documents to senior people. And I just didn't know whether it was good or bad. And you had no sense of whether I was on track or not. And that's a really horrible feeling. If you know you're doing well, that's great. If you know you're doing badly, that's okay, as long as you know how to improve. But if you don't know if you're doing well or not, and you don't know whether you made a mistake or not, it's not fun. Like you constantly start questioning stuff and things that you deep down know you're good at, you still question them. The day I left Diageo, that was the day that I slept perfectly through the night. And I was like, that is my body telling me this was a really, really good decision. And I slept like a baby. I was like, oh, this is so good. Because all of that kind of weight and that stress had been removed, that anxiety had been removed. It was always like, well, this is uncomfortable. But once this is through and I've done it once, then I'll be fine the second time. And then you do it the second time. It doesn't work. And you're sort of constantly in that uncomfortable position. That's not learning. That's just unpleasant. And you said something that I thought was really interesting that really resonated with me. You said, if you know you're doing a good job and you're getting feedback, you're doing a good job. You can work through all kinds of stuff. And even if you know you're not doing a good job, but you're getting coaching, or you're getting some constructive feedback and you know you can improve, that's also a great place to be. But were you getting any feedback, positive or negative? Not very much, no. And that's what made it very difficult. And also it's very hard to predict how things were. One thing I would say is if you're in the wrong spot, the earlier you call it, the better. One of the other things I mentioned is I spent a lot of money on the MBA, right? I got this dream job and I didn't want to have three months on my CV of well, I would be unemployed, plus I'd have this like black mark. And I was like, well, if we just stick it out a bit longer, like months or Christmas, and let's wait till the new year. And 
it's just something better and you're much better just calling it early and the fact that i'll sleep through the night was like an immediate okay the body knows this is the right decision the people who get constructive feedback usually can take it and run with it and they use it as motivation but it's the folks who get no feedback that are the most anxious that are the most on edge that question themselves the most i just think it's really tough especially if you know that it's not going well and you're getting no feedback you're just in your head about it I'm curious, was there like a pivotal moment when you said, hey, enough's enough. I think this is the wrong fit for me. I guess I'm just curious how you had the courage or what sign you looked at to leave and not just stay in that discomfort forever. I think it was their call, not mine. I had my like yearly review and the yearly review was just in the middle. It was long. It was like an hour and a half, two hours. And bearing in mind, I've got ADHD, so I was like struggling to stay focused. Anyway, it was all just mediocre. And it was like right at the end, they're like, yeah, we're going to put you on a performance plan. It's like, what? Like, we've never discussed this. I've been the company for a year and a half. Like, we never discussed this. And they're basically like, oh, we'll pay you out. We'll pay you off if you want to leave. And I was like, yes, I do. So it was kind of a crazy 24 hours. I was just about to get married as well. I was about two months, three months away from marrying. Like, obviously, some expensive wedding stuff. I should have been panicking. But like, I phoned my fiance, well, now wife. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I've just been fired. I'm not sure. It was quite vague. But I think they're just pushing me out. It was fine. Like she was really supportive and you know, slept through the night and it was all good. But I think if forced it to come to an end, if that didn't happen, I probably would have just dragged it on. I don't know what would have forced it in the end. It's difficult. And I think you do need to force situations to come to an end. You know, if things are like really, really bad every day, it's clear they're really bad. When things are like mostly bad, but there's some good stuff, that's a really nasty place because you keep thinking, oh, it's going to improve today. It's going to improve. You know, I'm going on holiday in three weeks' time, so let's just wait till that. And that can end up dragging on for ages, whereas it's better to try and force a decision. But you know what, I don't think this is working, so I'm going to talk to my boss in two months' time, and we're just going to call it then. But like trying to have an end to these situations is really useful. Yeah, I totally agree. And it takes a lot of courage, even if they give you the option and say, hey, we can pay you out or you can try to make it work. I think a lot of people are scared to take that escape hatch even though they're staring at us. So that takes a lot of courage. You talked about basically getting a lot of middle of the road performance feedback. You said it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It was sort of ho-hum all the way around. I'm curious, is that like the worst performance review or feedback that you've had in your career? Have you ever had a bad one? I think when I first joined Grace, it was a massive learning curve. And I was aware it was a massive learning curve, but it's a real difficulty of I'm hired for this job and I've got to at least try and claim some competency rather than I just don't know. So it's like, how do I prove myself? But I don't quite know how to prove myself. It was the first three, six months were not great. They were generally like good. It was just quite an adjustment from a corporate experience to a startup world. I mean, I remember like the first day I walked out wearing like barely smart trousers and a shirt and it looks ridiculous. Everyone's like t-shirts and shorts. And yeah, it's like that sort of adjustment mentally as well, because you're used to in a different way. And like, I was writing budgets and starter in consulting life, but like I was never the person to deal with that. So I'd be like, yeah, I think we can achieve this number. And then I did it at Grace. And I was like, ah, I'm the guy who's got to do this number. And I pushed it a bit harder than I thought I should have done. I was like, oh, I should have gamed the system a bit. I should have lowered it. So it was quite an adjustment. So I'm very grateful for Grace. They gave me good feedback and I did adjust. I was super passionate. I just didn't know where to be, where to apply my passion. It's probably the simple way of looking at it or the polite way of looking at it. And so did they say something to you specifically or is this just you self-assessing and saying, hey, I needed to reorient myself to this new environment? Or did they pull you aside and say something specifically? 
It was a bit of both, really. So we had a probation period, and my probation period got extended, which was like a really difficult time because I was trying to buy a house at the time. So I'd been married to my wife, and I was trying to buy a house, and my mortgage application fell through because my probation had been extended. And what does that mean? At least in the US, it's fairly common that the first 90 days are in your contract. Usually when you sign it, it says, hey, at the end of 90 days, we can fire you at will if this doesn't work out. It's not those exact words, but more or less it communicates that. But when you go, as far as you're concerned and legally you're employed by that company, they're just saying, hey, if this really doesn't work out, we don't have to put you on a plan and do all this stuff. If it doesn't work out, we'll kind of just part ways. Are you talking about something a little bit different? Is there a more formal process that you're talking about here? It's pretty much the same in the UK. The only difference is you either pass your probation or you don't, but they can also extend it. So they can say, we still have some questions. And that's what they did. So it's like some bits were doing well, some bits not. And to be honest, it was a really good kind of push. Uh, like it was horrible at the time, don't get me wrong, it was horrible, I hated it, but I'm glad they did it. And I really understood what I had to do at that point. I was nervous of making decisions. I didn't feel I had the kind of authority to do it. And I was like asking permission for too much stuff rather than just getting on with it and taking ownership. Because I was used to the corporate world where you're like multiple layers of bureaucracy and therefore you don't just do things in isolation. And that was really useful because that was the point that really turned it around. And I was like, okay, now I know what I want. And I was also rapidly learning stuff. You could wing it at the beginning and then you sort of realize you're not actually winging it. I was starting to realize I wasn't winging it. I'm glad that that happened. It was a horrible experience. Grace handled it well. They did a good job. They gave clear feedback. And I was able to improve. It's not easy giving feedback. It's not easy taking it. But when it works well, it's really powerful. So you get this feedback. They're extending your probation period with the benefit of hindsight. Obviously, you're grateful for this and I want to hear why. But in the moment, how do you feel about it? What's going through your mind in the moment when they say, hey, you're X number of days into this job. This is going not so great on our side. We want to extend that probation period. What are you thinking about? I mean, on a personal level, it's difficult because we tried to buy that at the time. And the mortgage company, because I was on probation, they wouldn't accept it. So it was like calling the wife, be like, yeah, we might lose the house. She was great about it, but it was not an easy call. I left Diageo after this one, right? I've just had a difficult leaving of a company and my first three months at Grey's are not going exactly to plan. It's like, it's history repeating itself in such a short period of time. It's like a really difficult situation. With hindsight, it's easy to look at it and say, that was great. And I learned from it. But the time it was like really tough. So the story that you just shared where you said, hey, the story that I was telling myself in my head is history repeating itself something that I hear all the time from clients. And it's usually that they've worked somewhere in the past where things didn't work out. Either they got laid off or maybe they got let go because of performance or fit reasons or whatever, skill set reasons. And they're starting at a new company and they're a couple months in and all of a sudden their spidey senses are tingling because things are feeling the way that it used to feel at the other company when things didn't work out. So you had that feeling and it didn't paralyze you. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that same thing could happen to me and I might be totally out of sorts? And when it happened to you, you used it as motivation to keep going. It felt different at Grace. To go back to the point that we discussed earlier, I felt there was a path out. Whereas when Diageo were like, oh, you're going to get on performance review, I was like, they've probably already made the decision, so I'm going to fail whatever happens. And also... I don't really know what good looks like. So this is not going to be a fun process. It's not like a sales job where it's like, if you don't hit your sales number, you know that you've missed it. I don't really know what good looks like. And therefore, I don't really know whether I'm on track. So this is just going to be difficult. Whereas with Gray, it was clearer to be like, okay, here's some tangible things to work on. I was like, okay, cool. 
and it was just more tangible. It was easier to understand. And it was kind of like quite an easy expectation setting. It's like, okay, you just want me to make a decision. Okay, fine. I can do that. We didn't have enough simple conversations before it. That's one thing I would say. I could have learned that a while ago. We didn't need to have this like really formal conversation. I just thought that you were making a decision rather than me. It was just easier to understand and easier to bounce back from that. I think if it was a Diageo situation where it was like, it's kind of mediocre feedback, but I don't really know how to improve because it's all quite vague, then that probably would have been like history repeating itself again. And is that why you described it as like a positive thing, getting that feedback? Because it was clear and it was actionable versus the other at your previous gig when you got that feedback? It was easier to understand. And also I wanted to take ownership. I just wasn't sure I was allowed to. So it was easier to say, okay, cool. I've got my budget and I've got my target. You just want me to get on with it. And that was just easier. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice, what advice would you give yourself to try to shortcut that process? Because you're in this new environment and anyone listening to this is in an environment where something like this has happened, where whatever they thought their job was or their authority was, is maybe different than what the company thought. And aligning is a really important part of this process. Would you do anything different or would you give yourself any different advice? I mean, not often startups are not very good at having a formal process. And often a formal process isn't necessarily the best move either. I would have those conversations with your manager and say, am I on track? Am I hitting expectations? What can I do better? And have those really early, really often. And also just be very upfront to be able to look. I want you to be honest. There's things that I'm doing that like annoy you or not right or not to the level you want or whatever it may be. Just let me know. You know, I've had a few people who worked with me in the past who've done that. And it's such a powerful thing because you just open up to be able to have those real conversations. And I've also managed people who are very sensitive to it. And you're like, well, this wasn't great, but like, do I mention it or do I not? And as a manager, that's really difficult as well. Basically getting more feedback and getting it earlier and more frequently is a really strong thing to do. Yeah. And just set the expectation up front that you're going to ask for feedback. They're going to give you feedback that you want to be talking about ways to get better and almost make it part of your operating system. I love that. I read the book, The First 90 Days, at one point when I was starting a new head of growth job. And one of the things that stood out to me is in the book, the author basically says, one of the great first conversations with your manager is to ask them, what decisions would you like to be consulted on versus what do you want me to own? And I have found that to be really helpful as well. And again, it's just what you were saying, right? It's just being totally transparent to get on the same page and to avoid any wrong assumptions on both sides. I think that's a really good one as well, because I think you can cause a lot of problems as well by making decisions that you shouldn't have made, or also just humming and ahhing about decisions you should have just taken. But like just explicitly saying, I think I should just take this call on my own and just tell you what I've done. Do you agree? Okay. So I think just having just more communication generally, like having more honest conversations, but I like your phrasing in terms of just tell people that you're going to have those conversations. Yeah, just make it part of the initial get-to-know-you type one-on-one combos that you have at the beginning. Yeah, I love that. So we talked about having the probation period extended and some of the challenges that come along with that and the self-dialogue and all of that. I got to ask, is this the lowest moment of your growth story? Close. I don't think it was. I think we have to move history on. So I left Grace. It was a good situation, actually, because I'd gone on the job. And I was again on the phone to my wife, and I was like, I had agreed equity with a new client, but I, a new role that I hadn't got in writing. So I was like, well, do I sign the contract now? Or do I like wait for the equity in writing? Like, 
the guy's good for it. And there was a bit of commotion in the office. There was like lots of people talking. It was a funny vibe. So I'd got my next job after grades and I was probably worrying about when to resign. And then my manager, like, I said, my one-to-one manager, I was like, cool. And the CEO was there. He's like, oh, can he sit down? I was like, oh, I immediately knew what's going on. It's like, yeah, we're going to shut this division down. And I was so grateful because if I resigned the day before, I would have got nothing. But because I was like double checking the equity and getting it writing, I managed to get severance. And then I immediately started my new role, which was brilliant because at the time my wife was six months pregnant. So I was like expecting my daughter and basically got to pay out. Instead of having my three-month notice period, I did two weeks on holiday, had a nice time. So it was lovely. Long-winded way of saying my worst bit was in the next job. It was an interesting journey, actually, because my playbook at Gray's had no relevance in my next job. I think that's common, man. It's like, once you learn enough and you learn enough playbooks, you learn. They're not plug and play. I'm so grateful because Gray's was like, sophisticated performance marketing at massive scale and Glenn Mechanic was product. Like all I did was conversion. I did nothing else because you can't inspire people to repair a car that's not broken. So all of the techniques I used, totally wasted. But I had to learn some other ones and I had to learn them quickly and that was really useful. A few months in and we used to have quarterly meetings with the management team and we were running out of money and we literally had to write a list of who we were going to fire in what order. It suddenly feels very real because these are people with families and mortgages and rent. And this was tough. That was probably the worst meeting I've ever had. And did you see that coming or was that a surprise? We never did it, I should add. We never actually did it. I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't talk about runway. I didn't talk about like profitability and where they were and things that I think are more common now. They were, but like I looked at the numbers. I saw the business wasn't growing. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm the guy. I'm the guy to turn it around. And then you sort of didn't realize, well, got a diagnose why it's not growing and then you've got to fix it. And I was trying to play the Gray's playbook and realized it doesn't work. Some things are working, but like it took a while to realize why they weren't working. It was interesting because the founders, when their kind of backs were against the wall, they were much more willing to take risks. So we went from two years of no growth. We did some quite complex stuff with pricing, but effectively we pushed pricing up. The business then grew 70% in two months. So like we had rapid growth and then they did a fundraise off the back of that and then the business was fine. But like at the time it was pretty hairy. And so you're literally in a meeting room and you had to create a list of people who were on your teams and adjacent teams to let go, to cut costs? Yeah, exactly. How does that feel in the moment doing that? I've never had to do that in that way. That sounds brutal. It's a different emotions, right? Because you're very conscious that these people have got families and mortgages and rent and et cetera. You also know that the business is going under. So you have to do it and your back is against the wall. And now you've got to make some difficult decisions. Luckily, we didn't actually do it. So it was a very different situation to actually do it. And a lot of founders, a lot of people will go through that. And that's much worse. But yeah, it was tough. These sort of mates, people you had lunch with the day before, and then you're like, yeah, I think the guy's like probably not adding enough value. I think that guy's like on the list. It's a horrible thing to do, but it's a lot of startups to go through. And I think we talk a lot about last year and the year before, or year before particularly, it's like tech crunch and unicorns and everything going great. And the reality is it's tough. A lot of people have never seen a kind of downturn in the economy and therefore living through that. It's really unpleasant having the conversations. There's no sugar to And I imagine that there are folks listening to this that are probably going through this exercise right now in the tech climate that we're in. 
there's a lot of this stuff going on. Or if they haven't done it, maybe they've already done it a few months ago or getting ready to do it. Luckily, you didn't have to let folks go. But do you have any advice for other people who are listening that are in that similar situation of having to put together their list? I think for the people doing it, if you frame it in a positive way, you're protecting the job of the people who stay, which I know is like a slightly funny way of framing it. But like, you have to do it. It is a difficult situation. You've got to treat people with respect. You've got to do it early. You can also do a lot of things in terms of supporting them. And I've seen some really good founders recently who've gone massively above and beyond to support the people they've made redundant. Can you give just a quick example of that, just to illustrate it? I mean, they just hammered the sort of founder WhatsApp groups and said, these are the people I've got. And they've like showcased them. They've written their resumes. They've given them interview prep. They've connected them to loads of people. And all of them were fine. They look back on the founder with a lot of respect. The business made a pivot and they treated people with respect. I think from a person at risk of redundancy point of view, redundancy is difficult, but it's especially difficult when you never saw it coming. And I think a lot of businesses are like, oh, things are doing well, everything's great. And a lot of people were totally blindsided by it. So I think it's important to understand the reality of the business, like go and talk to the finance people, go and talk to the leadership and say, are we doing well or not? How long is our runway? And have those real conversations. And what you don't want in a situation where you're like, oh, life is great. The recruiter calls you and you ignore them. And then the next day, it's like, we're out. If you saw it coming and you knew there was a risk of it, it's a very different situation when you're totally blindsided. Because, I mean, Gray's made some people redundant. And none of them saw it coming. And it hit them really, really hard. Because they thought we were going to imminently going to exit. And the route is we won't. I think it's challenging on both sides, right? On the one side... You want folks to know how things are going, good or bad. The challenge is when things aren't going well, people are less motivated. And so it's like you want to obviously lead with transparency from the company perspective, but you need to do it in a way that still keeps people motivated. Here's the results. Here's the state of the union right now. And here's what we're doing to turn things around, I think is the minimum way to do that. And I think maybe that's why if there are companies out there or folks working at companies don't share this stuff as transparently. Not every company does, even though it's become a lot more common to. That's usually, I think, what's underneath it is that the management team, usually an inexperienced management team, just isn't sure how to share that news in a way that still keeps their team motivated and doesn't have them checking out and spending half the day on looking for new roles and things like that. I think that's probably the fear. And I think from a person at risk perspective, one thing I would say is that the management team, if they have made that call, it's very, very difficult for them personally and professionally. They haven't taken that lightly. And yes, you're frustrated and annoyed, but that's the last resort. And that bitterness is not a useful thing. Founders definitely made a mistake because we all did. But you sort of have to try and say, well, they did what they had to do. At the time, it's awful. Don't get me wrong. There's no positive view at the time. But with hindsight, it's often a lot of personal growth because you get a chance to do what you want. Kind of safety net's been removed, and therefore you've got more free time and more kind of willingness to experiment and get things wrong. And a lot of people who have started businesses were like, Well, I was very redundant, I was fired, I was like, couldn't find a job. And that's a big catalyst for people. So, in hindsight, it's positive. In the time, it doesn't feel like that. And you obviously get to chat with a lot of folks who, whether it was their decision or not, are looking for new jobs. And this is maybe the weirdest time that I can remember for hiring and interviewing. I'm wondering if you have any advice for folks who are interviewing for new growth roles right now in this strange climate that we're in. I think growth in particular is an unknown thing for many people. So a lot of these roles are very badly scoped. 
and the emphasis has to be on yourself to understand does the company really need this role and am I the right person to do this role and also would I invest my own money into the company because the reality is you are because you probably would get paid more in a different role so definitely see it as a two-way process and really be comfortable because a lot of the time the companies don't really know what they want and you interview well and there's a spark but you can be the wrong person for that role. And that's really tough because no amount of like performance reviews are going to suddenly change your kind of skill set to that dramatically. So if you kind of walk in and you're a brand person and they need a commercial guy or vice versa, it's probably never going to work out. And you're probably going to have a series of reviews that aren't great and feedback that's difficult to understand. So you definitely need to kind of do your homework and really understand and use the interview process as a two-way street and really make sure that it's the right role for you and you're the right person and the company should be hiring. Tactically, does that mean people who are interviewing towards the end of the process should call their own interview rounds? Like what's the way to turn that into action? The balance of power changes in the interview process. Initially, the company's trying to get you interested in the role or the recruiter is, the internal or external. And then you said, okay, I'm interested, I'm committed. And then the emphasis is on you to prove yourself. And then in the end, when they make you an offer, the emphasis is on them to get you to sign in. So I would push hard in terms of this process. And right at the end, I would say, look, can I talk to your investors? Can I talk to the team? If you have a case study, try and get the real data. The more accurate it is, the better. And say, how are your numbers doing? Because what you don't want is, if a company is a turnaround situation, that's fine. As long as everyone knows it's that. What you really don't want is a situation where the business is not doing well, but everyone thinks that you're the silver bullet who will change it. And if only we ran some more PPC ads, the world would change, or if only we did this. And it never does, because you fundamentally don't have product market fit or product market channel fit. So as long as everyone is clear, if you walk in, the company's like, look, we're not doing well. We've got you the remit. We're going to support you. You do what you need. Okay, perfect. But if it's like, oh, we're doing really quite well. Well, this quarter wasn't great, but you know, we've got a big product launch happening and that's going to change the game and we've got this coming and that's the bit that's concerning. And I suppose the final thing would be to understand who did the role before and why did that not work? That's the issue. Because I had situations when I left grades where I knew the heads of brokes at the old companies who got fired and they were really good. And I was like, I know that person's really good and I know that him and I think similarly. And I know the things that you fired him for, because he basically said that conversion is not good enough and the product doesn't work. And the CEO was like, just do more ads. You have to understand what went wrong. And it's fine if they misfired, as long as they have a clear diagnosis of, you know what, we brought in this skill, it wasn't right, we've learned the lesson, we're now looking for this skill. And if that skill is used, then that's great. But what you don't want is just history repeating itself and having so many mishires. And companies will stack them up as well, because... They just won't learn the lesson of like understanding, okay, why did we get it wrong? That's such good advice. I got basically the exact same advice early in my career when I thought my career was going to be leading marketing teams. I transitioned into the cross-functional world of growth, but I met with a family friend who's a mentor in the tech space. And he said something like, the hardest job is to be the second head of marketing at a company or head of growth at a company because something happened with the first one, right? So they hired someone and either the company outgrew them or they stopped producing results or they were good and they had cultural issues with the team. And if you don't know what that is, you're going in and could potentially end up in the same way. 
And that's kind of what I hear you say here as well. So you've got to understand what happened. If there is someone who had the job before you, what about that didn't work out? So that you can understand, would you have done the same thing? And yeah, if you look at that person and you think, well, geez, that person's pretty smart. I'm not betting on myself to be orders of magnitude smarter than that person. I already think they're pretty good. And then you got to look at some of the other reasons why it might not be a good fit for you. I love that. It's such good advice. And I think also it's a good window into the founder. Do they have kind of reflection? Can they like articulately say, yeah, we made a mistake. This is the mistake we made. This is what happened. This is what we've done to diagnose the mistake. This is why we won't do it again. Because that's the window into them. I think the challenge with the interview process is it's all very formal. Everyone's on the best behavior. What you want is a bit of vulnerability. And I think it's fine if they made a mistake because very, very few founders have not mishired someone. And very few senior people have not walked into a role that wasn't right. I think you just need to kind of diagnose what went wrong and have that honest conversation. And that's a good window into how the founders operate normally. And are they willing to have blame-free kind of retrospectives and say, yeah, made a mistake, fine, move on. Thank you for coming on and sharing your stories and your advice and your tips for folks who are listening to this that are interested either in following or working with you potentially. Where should we send them? Feel free to stalk me on LinkedIn. I put some content on there. Similar to this, I suppose, in terms of growth plus like people is the sort of sweet spot. I'm less interested in the kind of technical side of growth now later in my career, but it's more in the kind of people and team and how they work. So yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. Cool. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a great experience. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.